Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Coming up on the Mark Devine Show. The world's most important spy skill, but it's not the world's sexiest spy skill, is an SDR which stands for surveillance detection route. If you think you're being followed home, go around the block. If that car is still you know, following, you have to go around the block, you know you're being followed. So that's a, a simple, important spy skill that anybody can do. Hi, welcome to the Mark Devine Show. I'm your host, Mark Devine. Super stoked to have you here today. We're gonna have an awesome show. On the show, I explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of some of the world's most crazy, cool, inspirational, courageous leaders. I'd like to talk to a broad range of folks, all walks of life, martial arts grandmasters, top CEOs, and even CIA experts who teach civilians like you how to save your life or loved one's life. So I'm super stoked to have my guest, Jason Hansen, on today, who is a former CIA officer, New York Times bestselling author of Spy Secrets That Can Save Your Life. Jason's a frequent media guest, has appeared on Today's Show, Dateline, Fox and Friends, Shark Tank, and he runs a training school at his 320-acre spy ranch in southern Utah. Super stoked to be talking about your knowledge and insights, Jason. Thanks for joining me on The Mark Show. How are you doing today, buddy? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So just talking also before about Utah, like what, what an interesting state. So you've got a chunk of land and you run your spy training camp down in Southern Utah. That's uh, interesting. So what's that like? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I love Utah. So I was born and raised in Virginia, just right outside of Washington, D.C. Right. As soon as I left the agency, I was like, I want to get out of this traffic. I want to get out of this nonsense. And we also wanted to open up our spy school. And Southern Utah's got good land, cheap land. It's a wonderful place. And so we've got our 320-acre Spy Ranch where we do a bunch of training out there. That's cool. You know, you said you grew up in Virginia. What was your childhood like? What were some of the biggest influences and challenges and, and kind of like inspirations that led you to, uh, you know, even join the agency and whatever? I don't know, you know, much about your background, but tell us a little bit about yourself. So I had a fairly normal childhood very blessed, nothing crazy, no trauma, nothing outrageous like that or horrible like that. So dad owned his own business. Mom was a school teacher, born and raised just a few miles outside of DC. I always loved just doing boy stuff, quote unquote, running around the woods, shooting each other with BB guns. <laughs> same, same. So being at the yeah. Boy Scouts, being an Eagle Scout, I was camping all the time. I was doing wilderness survival activities. It was kind of that where I was like, you know what? When I grow up, I don't want a real job. I don't want to be sitting behind some desk, like shuffling papers for the next 40 years. So I'd say the scouts had a big, big influence on me. Where I was at, we had some woods behind our house and just going in the woods and painting. There was a river not too far and all that. So I've always loved activities in the outdoors. I had the same experience. In, and um, so I grew up in upstate New York and upstate New York, as you know, is not like the city at all. Like it's just tons and tons of land. And so I could just go out and just go cross country skiing on my own in the, in the wintertime. During the summer, we would go up to the Adirondacks and go to Lake Placid. We had a house on the West Shore of Lake Placid, which had no road access. So we had to either hike in or take a boat. So we had a small fleet of boats, and it was a pretty nice setup. 
but my backyard was the mountain range, my front yard was the lake, and I was in six million acres of protected wilderness called the Adirondack State Park. I tell you what, like that was the better than any teacher I've ever had or any academic degree I've ever received. It's extraordinary, and I really fear that kids don't really have access to that for the most part, especially in the coastal cities and where most people are packed in. And the way people are living with their constant connection to the digital devices, they've really lost that. So I hope to get to help people get back into nature and you know back outside. It's such a powerful thing that we had that maybe we took it for granted, you know? I agree with you. So I've got six kids and we have a four-wheeler. They go ride around the four-wheeler on our land. They go play. They go do things. And I'm like, get out and go here. I mean, you, you know how much I wish I would have had 320 acres growing up, even though I had a great childhood and had that land. Like, I wish I had a four-wheeler and we actually own two ATVs because we got the six kids so they can split it. I'm like, yeah, I wish I had two ATVs growing up. You guys go out there, ride them around and don't kill each other. So, you know, what was kind of like took you out of the woods and got you into the path you're on? you were on? So uh, you went to school in Southern Virginia at a school called Radford University. It's basically the redheaded stepchild of Virginia Tech. I was getting ready to graduate college, knew I wanted to do something, not a desk job. And being from DC, I mean, everything was in your backyard, right? Every government agency. So I applied at police departments. I applied to the Secret Service. I applied to the CIA. I applied to probably a dozen different agencies. And my very first job out of college was a local police department in Virginia. But very soon after, it was the exact same week that the Secret Service and the agency offered me a job. Incredibly blessed again. I was like, well, I think the agency is probably going to be a bit you know, more enjoyable, a bit more fun. And so I joined the agency and didn't look back and didn't regret it one bit. How many people do they hire right out of college? That's interesting. I, mean, I have a bunch of peers, as you are aware, who are in Ground Branch, but you know, they, yeah. they shifted over to the agency after 15 or 20 years in special ops. And that makes sense to me. But taking someone right out of college, I guess you got to train them up from scratch. That's what they're thinking, just like the SEALs would. Well, I mean, you just said it perfectly. So the agency kind of takes a combination of people, meaning they want really well-rounded. And so I was pretty much, besides the police department, but I was pretty much right out of college. I was 23 when I joined the agency. So with the agency, there was a bunch of college kids with me. And then, as you said, a bunch of former special forces guys, SEALs, Delta, whatnot. And so that was kind of the mixture of us. It was just a, a real well-rounded Motley crew. Did the agency hire you to be a, like a field operative or, you know, because like I had a CPA, they could have hired me for the like finance division. They did or... not hire me to be a CPA, I can tell you that one. <laughs> so yeah, I was doing surveillance, counter surveillance, some uh, EP, protection type of work, that kind of stuff. Right. Not smart enough to be an analyst. Jack Ryan's the analyst, but they kind of like take a little bit of liberty with that guy, right? Right, like, exactly. He's doing everything. He's the, he's the super seal and the analyst. Yeah. There's probably not too many of those guys. Not that I knew. I mean, maybe they're out there, but yeah, yeah. The analysts are usually, I mean, they're awesome. They're great, but they're doing their analyst stuff and they're not out there on the streets doing stuff. Most listeners are unfamiliar with the farm. Tell us about the experience of indoctrination and the initial training through the farm, which is kind of like buds for you guys. What was the career like? Like, what's it, what's it like to work for the agency? It, to me, it sounds terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know who to trust. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the form I'd say, and again, remember, I'm police and then CIA. I didn't serve in the military. But you know, the form is, is militaristic. It's in a boot camp in a way, meaning they want to weed out the weak. They want to get rid of the, the people who are going to make it. You know, you do PT and they make you miserable doing your push-ups and sit-ups and all that. So, of course, there's a psychological element. They want to make sure you have the mental toughness. And I don't have to tell you this, is that mental toughness is really what it's about. I had college guys who were college football players in my class, like breaking down in tears at times. 
And while I'm certainly never going to be the strongest guy, I enjoy suffering and I can outsuffer most people. I mean, it was good. It was good training. I mean, amazing training. A lot of the instructors are former SEALs, former Delta, you know, a lot of contractors, like you said, ground branch guys. So incredible shooting, driving, all kinds of training. Do they really get into field craftsmanship at the farm or is it like buzz, just basic stuff? Different things you go more in depth on, depending on what you're going to do long term. They get into it. They teach it to you. You run scenarios, obviously, a lot of scenario-based stuff. You know, I'd say, I'm trying to think of my class. I don't even remember how many big white class it was. Let's say 24. So if you wash out, it's not like you get completely fired. You go to the proverbial basement where you're doing some horrible, boring job and they just like, okay, you know, you washed out. Here's your, here's your desk job in the basement where you'll never be seen again, but you have your TSSCI clearance and we don't want to wait. Do you get a second chance if you wash out? That is a great question because I know the guys who washed out and pretty much I never saw them again. Maybe I like bumped into them once in the headquarters building. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you ever get out of that basement job and if there's other opportunities. That's a good question. So what's it like, uh, I know without revealing anything that you can't reveal, what's the career path like? So the wonderful thing is, is the agency really wants you to be well-rounded. So you can do a job for three years and then they're like, hey, now we want you to go here for three years. And now we want you to do this for three years. And what's really cool is you can take pretty much any training you want, even if it's not your specific job. So I could be looking at our, our training options. And even though I had known, and I'm just making this up, but let's say it was safe cracking 101, right? Even though my job now requires safe cracking, I could be like, you know what? I want to take that. And they're like, okay, go, go ahead and take it. So they were very open to education, to being well-rounded, to all this kind of stuff. I mean, they were going to pay for me to go get my master's degree before I decided I was going to leave the agency. So they're all about education and they're all about just making sure you can, again, move around and you're not working at the exact same spot for 20 years. That's fascinating. How many years were you in the agency? So I was there seven years. So you weren't there long enough to see what was going on at the higher echelons. And I'm just curious, like, what is your, what is your view on the agency today in terms of its reach and its accountability or lack thereof? You know, it's, uh, it seems to me that, you know, whenever something really bad goes on, there's some sort of tendril that you could trace back to the agency. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I didn't stay at the agency 30 years, 40 years, but I had many mentors who did. I joined at 23. They were in their 50s at the time. Amazing men and women. So I would say, as we know, most of the stuff you hear that the agency stops, you never hear about. Yeah. Same thing with special ops. You only hear about the fuck ups, right? With the SEALs. Exactly. Exactly. So what I will say about the agency, and this is, I don't care about these politics. I mean, I'm very conservative. That's no secret. But when there's a Republican president, the agency is allowed to do more. They're allowed to get more boots on the ground. They're allowed to take more risks. The country's safer because they're allowed to gather more intelligence. And anybody will tell you this again, regardless of your politics. When a Democrat comes in as president, they're like, you know what? We don't want as many people on the ground. We just want satellites to do it. We just want like signals intelligence. We don't, we don't want anything that could cause a problem and be an international incident. So there's a lot less risk taken. So that's probably the biggest thing. I mean, the men and women are great. They're awesome. They work very hard. Is it just the problems of who's president at the time? Because then it dictates how many risks the agency is allowed to take and how much, you know, gathering intelligence actually happens. That's really interesting. You know, we saw with COVID just how intertwined big pharma is with some of these other health organizations, FDA, CDC, even, you know, at the UN WHO level. Is any of that play out at the agency that you're aware of where their corporate interests are kind of like interweaving. So I know that like in is you got your own venture fund and there's a lot of cross-pollinization with the tech world. 
could that influence the CIA's outside of or extra political? I didn't see any of that. I mean, obviously, you said InQtels, the agency's incubator, and they're always looking for the private sector to, hey, what's the next greatest thing? What's the next greatest tactic or spy thing? But no, the agency, I mean, as much as everybody likes to bash them, as much as everybody likes to say they're controlled by so-and-so or this or that, is they're pretty independent. People often ask me, hey, Jason, what is the real deep state? Did you see the deep state of the CIA? And I say, yes, I will tell you 100% what the real deep state is because I've seen it. It is not the president of the United States because he's gone every four to eight years. It's not some senator. The deep state in the government is the middle manager. It's the bureaucracy. Yeah. And I saw this. I had supervisors and thankfully it was only one supervisor. And she was a typical example of the deep state causing problems, not doing her job, but you couldn't fire her because she was a government employee with her top secret security clearance. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I have a particular view on this too. Like generally, whenever president was elected, he would bring in you know, a handful, when I say a handful, up to 100 maybe of his loyalists and friends and put them into the alphabet soup executive branch agencies. And so over time, you, you, were, you know, we really had a balance of viewpoints in the agencies. Well, Obama changed all that because when he came in, he brought in 3,000 people into the federal bureaucracy. And you can guarantee those people were of one ilk, right? And so that was really where the deep state which was just basically the bureaucracy, started to actually look like a deep state that was having an agenda that was not as balanced as we were used to. I know that's my theory. I mean, I, I saw and I know it's in many other agencies and that's, yeah, that's the problem. So let's shift focus because you got some cool stuff that you do. Your book, Spy Secrets That Can Save Your Life and the stuff you teach down in Utah. You know, why did you write the book? And was it something that happened in your life or, you know, just your desire to protect your family? Like, what was the impetus in, to turn this into a business and a lifestyle? When I left the agency, I mean, I love what I did, right? I love personal protection. I love safety, self-defense, you know, all that stuff. I really loved it. I was doing a bunch of corporate work and it was almost these huge corporations, like literally sneaking me in the back door and saying, hey, sign this NDA. You can't tell anybody, blah, 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 blah. I'm the type of stuff. And then- you know, I hated that. Well, I didn't hate it. I mean, it was great money, but I didn't like the corporate lawyers and the bureaucracy and all the stuff that was like the government. But there was this Shark Tank, the television show. I had never seen it, but some buddy of mine was like, hey, there's this show. You should go on it. And I was like, no, I don't want publicity. I, you know, I don't. That's not me. It's like the exact opposite of what I do. And I had a business mentor because I was trying to learn how to run a business. Obviously, I didn't know how to do that. And he said to me, are you good at what you do? Will it help people? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, you know, I am. It will. He said, well, then you actually need to get out and promote yourself and stop being an idiot who's hiding you know, behind the curtain kind of thing. Went on the show Shark Tank and it worked out. I got a deal with Damon John. And that kind of transitioned me to the masses. I Meaning before I was doing corporate, uh, high net worth individuals only, friends and family type of thing. So you were doing actual security or, or teaching? Or both, what? both. Yeah. Both. So executive protection, also security training, like some very wealthy guy. Well, he'd say, hey, I'm going to Europe for two weeks and I want a bodyguard for two weeks in Europe only, not when I'm in the States. Or hey, I want you to come into my house and teach my college-age kids self-defense, how to protect themselves. So it was stuff like that. And then after Shark Tank, it grew to more of the masses, not just the super wealthy billionaires or you know people like that or politicians. It was evasive driving. It was hand-to-hand self-defense. It was, hey, you know, teach me concealed carry stuff. So it kind of morphed. And I like working with ordinary Americans, quote unquote, much better than the corporate bureaucracy stuff. Has your business uh, ticked up since the COVID uh, crisis? So my business, like many other in the security industry, just took off like a rocket during COVID. The only thing that hurt during COVID was the executive protection business. 
So obviously, you know, the award shows, the music concerts, because we do a lot of musicians. But as far as the training, yeah, our phone was ringing off the hook of, hey, can you come in and teach my clients this or teach my family this? What's the name of your company? So Spy Briefing is the name of the company. Spy Briefing? Yep, Spy Briefing. So about the um, kind of like the juicy takeaways that we can get into on a podcast, probably not going to teach any self-defense uh, in terms of hand-to-hand combat, but let's talk about an individual's, you know, let's say there's a woman listening who's concerned for safety in a parking garage, you know, dark at night, or even just leaving the house early in the morning, you know, some of the basic scenarios, what are some of the things you recommend for, you know, an individual to protect themselves? Yeah. One of the things I always teach, and I say it's the world's most important spy skill, but it's not the world's sexiest spy skill, is an SDR, which stands for surveillance detection route. All that means is, okay, let's say you're going, let's pretend you all are spies, everybody listening, watching. Let's say you're going to a meeting in Russia with your asset. You're not going to go from your hotel room to McDonald's, your meeting, right? Because you could be followed. So first you go to Walmart and then you go to Starbucks and then you go to get your dry cleaning and then you go get gas. So you go to all those different places running a surveillance detection route so you can see if you're being followed. So I, I teach people how to do that. And I say, listen, let me tell you a real life story. Had this woman, she was in the Macy's shoe department. There was some guy she made, she said, hey, this guy's making you feel uncomfortable. So she went over to perfume. Two minutes later, this guy shows up a perfume. Then she goes over to the housewares. Two minutes later, a guy shows up in housewares. Then she goes over to women's clothing. Guy shows up in women's clothing. So she said, I saw a security guard. I went up to the security guard. I pointed out this creepy guy. And the creepy guy took off running out front of Macy's shoe department. And they never saw him again. And she had the security guard walk her to her car. So I say, listen, all of us can run an SDR in five minutes. I mean, if you think you're being followed home, Go around the block. If that car is still, you know, following, you have to go around the block. You know, you're being followed. So that's a a simple, important spy skill that anybody can do without being overly paranoid. How would you know if you're being followed in a car? If you're of the agency, right? You can't make it obvious. You can't start doing crazy turns to turn everything because then surveillance will know you're trying to evade them, and they'll say, "Hey, this is intelligence." But luckily, us civilians here in the U.S., we don't have to keep anything a secret. Meaning, go down a one-way street. Is that car still following you down a one-way street? Okay, flip a U-turn. Does that car immediately flip a U-turn? So things that are not normal human behavior. Somebody may happen to take a right and then a right like you, but they're probably not going to go around the block and flip a U-turn. Right. But are there any tells? I mean, we drive every day. Cars are behind us all the time. So what's the tell that maybe someone's following you? So if you had the pros following you, check their tires. Meaning overseas, they may be driving a, let's just say, Toyota Corolla, right? But they're going to have really fancy tires on it that do not match Toyota Corolla because surveillance always has good tires. So somebody's following you and you're like, hey, this is a junker Honda Accord from 1997. But hey, he's got tires that are $2,000 tires each. Well, that's probably surveillance or somebody that's got too much money. <laughs> that's interesting. I imagine that's just because they, they expect to drive fast and burn some rubber. Yeah, they don't want to lose you. Yeah, they want to make sure they got great tires so they can always keep up with you. What I always tell people is like, listen. And you're going to know this well, too. If you screw up in the U.S. government, the joke is you get promoted, right? If <laughs> right. you screw up in other countries, you may get killed or your family may get imprisoned. So they really take their job seriously. They really want to make sure they're not losing you while they're following you because that's a big, big deal. They can get in trouble. Right. What about um, home defense? What are the most important things to do there? Yeah. So I, I tell people, like, listen, when we go overseas, we case everything. And casing is simply, okay. Where are the cameras on this building? Where are the one-way streets? Where's the security guard? What time is, you know, it's casing everything about it. So one of the things I do is a home security audit. 
people bring me in, they have me go over their house and I say, listen, I'm going to case your neighborhood first because we don't want your house to be the weakest link on the street. I'm going to make sure that we've got your alarm signs. I want to make sure that we got your cameras. Driveway alarms are huge. Like every home, very few people have a driveway alarm. What does that do? So when someone drives in, you get an alert? Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, it's just think of it like it's a, literally a stake with a passive, passive, excuse me, infrared sensor on it. Nail the stake in the grass and it's your driveway. And anytime somebody drives down your driveway, it's a chime inside your house. And so a lot of the high net worth guys have these very long driveways. And like, you want to know if somebody's coming. And so we put a uh, passive infrared sensor PIR at the top and we put it towards the bottom because sometimes, you know, an animal runs through one, right? So we've got two. So we know, okay, two chimes, we know someone's coming. And even on my personal residence, I've got one of these PIR alarms because I want to know if the boogeyman's coming. Obviously, I've got cameras. I've got uh, an alarm system inside. I've got my gun on my nightstand. My wife has her gun on her nightstand in safes, rapid access safes. Is a rapid ethics safe like a thumbprint or how do you, is that, how do you get in it rapidly? So I have a good old non-electronic simplex safes where I just push four keys in still, but it's not electronic. It pops open. I grab my handgun and same thing with my wife. So I, I use a handgun for home defense just because I've got six kids. They're in the basement. They're all over. I can't just hunker down in my master bedroom and point the gun at the door and wait for the cops door. I've actually got to go clear my house and, and see where the threat is. I'm curious about the electrics. I have a push button safe, but it is electronic. And I was worried, like, what if the battery dies? But is that the only reason? Can you disable electronic uh, keypad with some mechanism? Well, the, so the electronic ones, I have a backup of that, meaning the ones where you just push is electronic and I have a simplex. The biometric where you have to put your fingerprint, those are the ones I don't trust. But I also have had electronic safes. The batteries die without giving me that battery warning, which is why it's a backup and it's not the main thing I rely on. Yeah, that's what I was thinking would be the issue. I got to worry about that, huh? Yeah, my wife does not want me to have a weapon inside the house. So that's the problem. Mine are out in the garage, which, you know, <laughs> hey, could you hold on a second? I got I to go get something. <laughs> I had a guy once, guy hires me and he says, my wife will not let me keep around in the chamber, in the house. And I said, listen, that's a bad idea because in a stressful situation, you're going to forget to chamber that round. You're going to forget to tap and rack, right? And he's like, well, that's, you know, it's agreement with my wife. So he calls me about six months after I trained him. He says, Jason, guess what happened? The other night, middle of the night, somebody's pounding and kicking my front door. I'm sure it's a home invasion. So I grab my gun. I go to the front door. I'm screaming and yelling. You know, I've got a gun. Get out of my house. Probably 20 seconds. He's down there pointing the gun. He says the noise stops and everything, right? He later finds out it was some crackhead going around the neighborhood trying to kick in doors and the police arrest him. But he says, when I was done, you know, I'm shaking, I'm nervous. I realized I never chamber that round. But in a stressful situation, your mind goes to mush, which is why you should have a loaded gun. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. Excited to have him with us as a sponsor of the Mark Devine Show. You know how important sleep is. Life expectancy decreases if you don't get enough sleep. It's fundamental to our health span and our lifespan. That's where Momentus Sleep comes in. Momentus is a combination of three curated ingredients, magnesium L3 and 8, apigenin, and L-theanine. Together, they help you fall asleep faster, stay asleep longer, and wake up supercharged. Each ingredient plays an important role. Momentus Sleep has these proven ingredients, but also, let me mention what it doesn't have. It has no banned substances, no toxic contaminants like heavy metals or pesticides, and no fillers. The Informed Sport and NSF certified for sports certifications are proof of that. I've tried a lot of things in the past, and I was just let down. 
Momentous Sleep comes in these super easy individual packets for max convenience. Just grab a pack, be on your way to the best night's sleep. It's great for travel too. So whatever your goal, Momentous wants to help you achieve it. Their products are developed in collaboration with my friend, Dr. Andrew Huberman, and used by 90% of the teams in the NFL. It's not just sports teams who rely on Momentous. My teammates in the military also work with the Momentous team. Now it's available to you. Learn more by going to livemomentous.com. That's L-I-V-E momentous, M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S.com. Use the code DIVINE, D-I-V-I-N-E, at checkout to start your new year with 20% off their sleep products and all of their best-in-class products. Again, that's livemomentous.com. Use the code DIVINE for 20% off. And now back to the show. We have a like a three-day training we call Sheepdog for seal fit. And uh, so we teach, you know, basic firearms handling just with a pistol, right? So we want civilians who never really handle a firearm or even if they had to really understand how to do it safely and, and uh, you know, not be a threat to themselves or their family, right? Because <laughs> most people are, right? And then we teach uh, trauma first aid, right? So what if someone does get hurt, right? You need to know what to do. You can't wait for the ambulance. And then uh, basic Krav Maga, right? So, in, and we've put all this together into scenarios. It's really effective training. That whole thing about, um, you know, just situational awareness. When you come under stress, and we really hammered at home, you literally lose like 50% of your IQ. You know, if you're, average, if you're at 150 IQ, which is pretty high, and you suddenly get into a crisis situation where some, your life is threatened, your family's life is threatened, you literally go down to 75 IQ, which is, you know, pretty much clinically lock up, you know, kind of IQ, not functioning well. So you have to realize that that's what the stress response does. It literally sucks your brain. You're not going to remember. You have to rise to the level of your training instead of stoop to the level of your intellect in those situations, right? Well, yeah, and I remember, and you know this better than I do, is tunnel vision. I remember people telling me like, hey, when you, if you ever have to use your gun or draw your gun, you're going to get tunnel vision. And until there was an agency incident happen to me, you know, I was like, nah, you know, not going to happen to me. You guys are idiots. You don't know what you're talking about, you know, but it was like, holy crap you get tunnel vision. You don't see anything around you type of thing. So yeah, I don't think most people realize how stressful it's going to be, how your mind is going to go to crap, which is why you need to make it as simple and easy as possible. I mean, my home defense plan is literally grab flashlight, open safe, grab gun, go take care of intruder. It should be much more complicated than that. Yeah, that reminds me. I, I meant to ask you, what was the most effed up thing that happened to you while you were at the agency? <laughs> I'm trying to think here. Obviously, I'm going to say anything that's going to be in trouble. I mean, there's always, you know this from the military, there's always just like, the joke was like, we're the best and the brightest, like after something would happen or something would go down. And it was very, I mean, it was infrequent, it didn't happen. Yeah, everybody thinks like, you know, the agency or the federal government and the general, like you're always going to have the most amazing weapons, the most amazing backup, the most amazing gear. It's like Tom Cruise every day, yeah, no. Right, yeah, where you've really got to be resourceful. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> Thanks for that very generic answer. I love it. <laughs> Here, here's a funny story. When I leave the, everybody who, not everybody, but when you work at the agency, obviously there's a big seal, that big agency seal and headquarters building. Oh yeah. And so a lot of people, when they get the job there, you get a picture taken in front of it, right? It's that cliche picture, you're in your suit. And so I had that picture taken and obviously I couldn't use it. But after I left the agency, I put it on my website and it said former CIA officer, right? And so I get a cease and desist letter from the agency that says, you can't use this picture because it looks like we're endorsing you. So I call a buddy of mine who's in this general area and I say, here's what happened. Tell me what's really going on. He says, well, the truth is you can use the picture. However, the agency doesn't like being told no. So we'll send you to the Justice Department and bankrupt you just because you didn't listen to us. 
And I love the agency. I do have a great relationship with them. And yeah, I have the same. I have a similar love hate relationship with the seals. Not hate, love hate, but you know, when I launched NavySeals.com, you know, they literally tried to steal it. They're like, "We need that." I'm like, "Well, you can. Right, right, yeah. You can buy it from me." And so they tried to take it from me, and I said no. And then they wouldn't let me trademark it. And then they trademarked the Trident and the seal name. And I'm like, you know. What are you guys doing, right? You're wasting your time. You know, focus on fighting the battles, right? So finally, over time, they just they finally let me go. I'm like, I'm doing you a service, right? I'm basically a one man recruiting band for you guys. So leave me alone or buy NavySeals.com. They wouldn't do it, right? Well, exactly, and that's what's like I said. I have a good relationship now with the agency, and people I've talked to are like, yeah, you are great for the agency, meaning you're a great recruiting tool, just like you are. Because I think it's awesome. I think everybody should work there. I think the men and women are amazing. So. People always say, well, why did you leave? Only because I wanted to get married and have a wife and kids one day. I didn't want to be some of my mentors who were lonely, miserable, single men who were divorced. That's, I mean, everything else was great. If you want to have a great lifestyle and a, be a single man, you know, by all means, do Go it. Go for it. Same thing with the SEALs. I left because of my marriage and I just knew that it wouldn't have survived. I stayed in the reserves though. So I had about 10 years active, 10 years reserve. The reserves were kind of a painful experience, to be honest. <laughs> I'm sure they were for, yeah, for you. I mean, did some fun stuff, but you never really get taken seriously again once you leave active duty, you know? <laughs> so what else? Like, what about um, traveling overseas, you know, for a husband or a family, you know, something like that? Well, how can they really protect themselves? Well, I mean, I always say, one, obviously, don't go out with your New York Yankees hat or Boston Red Sox. I mean, wear plain, boring clothing. You know, one of the things I loved about being overseas is we know most Americans are obnoxious and loud. So don't be like that. Yeah, I'm walking around plain and boring. So that way nobody pays attention to me. I always tell people too, like, let me tell you how to bribe the police overseas because you may need this depending on where you go. Now going into detail, is going to give me trouble. One time I'm overseas, something happens, surrounded by cops. And so the way you bribe the police is super easy. All you do is first play the dumb American, like, oh my gosh, I'm so, so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. And and you say, I bet there's a fine to pay. How do I pay that fine? Magic words. Those are the magic words. It works every time. How do I pay the fine? Yeah. Right. How do I pay? It's not like you whip out your wad of cash and be like, here, officer, leave me alone. Because even though they're they're corrupt, they don't want it to be thrown in their face. So in my case, uh, you say, you know, officer, I'm so, so sorry, blah, blah, blah. I bet there's a fine to pay. And he's like, it's $50 and you pay me right now. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm like, Man, you fool. Cut off easy. Right. You can ask 500 bucks. And so, of course, I'm like, oh, my gosh, $50. That's so much money. Oh, go, okay, officer, okay. And got out of it. <laughs> but, I mean, especially if you go to Mexico, like 97% of cops there are going to you know, get paid off kind of thing. So have cash, both U.S. dollars and the currency of the country you're going in. And I always like to have at least $300 of each. I also bring some gold coins. I've actually got them sitting on my desk. These are one-fourth ounce of gold, which right now is about 750 bucks a coin. And I'll put these in a belt. That way, if I need gold overseas, because there's a real gold and everything, and I can bribe the police with gold. So I'm all about having ways to, to get myself out of jams. And then I always say, like, stay at a good hotel, but not the best hotel. Meaning, don't go where every rich American goes. And if there's going to be a terrorist holdup or it's gonna, something's going to happen, like, stay, like, a few down from, you know, instead of staying at the Four Seasons, stay at the Holiday Inn, which is still a perfectly normal good hotel. And then I always say, like, listen, don't stay on the first floor because if a bomb hits, you don't want to be on the first floor, but don't stay past the sixth floor because no fire truck ladders or anything is going to get you past the sixth floor. And so I, I go in depth on stuff on that. But just don't be a fool, man. Keep your mouth shut. Don't flash your rings. Don't brag about it. I mean, I had some guy, very wealthy businessman going over to Russia years ago to fly the Russian big jets. 
And I told him, like, do not tell anybody you're going to fly Russian big jets because only super wealthy people do that. He ended up getting drunk, telling a hot chick he was doing this, almost ended up getting kidnapped. And thankfully he didn't. He was fine. But I'm just like, keep your mouth shut. And even a stranger asking you a question in the hotel lobby could be somebody who's trying to extract information and see if you're a good target of kidnap. And I think also part of not standing out is to understand what the local customs and laws are, right? And like, so if you're in the Middle East and the local custom is that, you know, you, that women are wearing something over their head, then suck up your ego and put something over your head if you're a female. You know what I mean? It's like, or like, um, I think in a lot of those countries, they, they just do not allow or tolerate any public displays of affection, especially, you know, between gay or, or, you know, those, those of the same sex. And so I know a lot of people from America are like, well, that's my right. But if you're over there, so just respect the local customs and traditions. And what you just said, I think is one of the most important things. Like we are Americans. We're the greatest country in the world. We have egos and we hate having people telling us what to do. But when you're in someone else's country, you're not on U.S. soil. There's no bill of rights. There's no constitution. So I realize again, you may hate wearing this thing over your head, or you may hate having to bow to somebody, do whatever, but who cares? Do it. It's not worth it getting in some foreign prison. So I'm all for that. I mean, when I'm overseas, and I don't travel overseas that much these days, but when I am, you better believe I obey every custom, I do every stupid thing just because I want to blend in, not stand out, not get in trouble. When it comes to like unarmed self defense, you know, like, you know, I know like many times, like, like in the SEALs, we have all sorts of different things that, you know, you can't say that we do blank. When I was going through the SEALs, we did, um, I became an instructor in, in something called SCARS, Special Combat Aggressive Reactionary System. It was awesome. Based on Sansu Kung Fu, which is, you know, developed by the Chinese mob. Very, very offensive, brutal. One of the reasons they got rid of it is because, you know, we would go through this, these five-day courses and these 30-day courses. They probably should have locked us in a rubber room for about a week afterward just to decompress. You know, but the guys would go out to McPee's and stuff and someone would come up and like slap them on the back. Hey, Joe. And next thing you know, they'd be like a pool of blood on the floor because their, their whole nervous system was just geared for combat. There's a picture of a shirt that has a frogman in a glass jar and it says, in case of war, break glass. That's what we kind of felt like. Anyway, so then they went to jujitsu and, you know, all these different things. I bet you the agency was the same. They had like a hodgepodge lodge. That's exactly what it is. It is- Whatever's most effective based upon the scenario. Yeah, we're going to take this, this, and this, and this. I mean, it's like every martial art combined of here's what works, you know, be fast, violent, aggressive. It's funny you mentioned that. Like you leave the farm, and again, I was 22 years old, and you leave the farm at 23, you think you're 20 feet tall and invincible. And you're going around, you're like, I hope somebody looks at me wrong tonight. You're a knucklehead young man, right? But it sounds like, again, the Navy SEALs are the exact same way because you're, you're amped up. You think you're the best in the world. What you did, you just did this incredibly hard training. Mostly the young guys, right? So once you get a, a tour under your belt and you're not an F&G anymore, you develop that humility and be like, oh, wow, there's a lot of, a lot of badasses out there. You know what I mean? I'm not the only one. <laughs> right. But so when you teach self-defense to a civilian, though, like, do you draw from just like scenario base? Okay, in this scenario, like someone's just maybe pulling you out, trying to pull you out the door of your car. This is what you do or like tell it, give us like introductory training when you first meet a woman who, who wants to, you know, help her daughter out or something. I do a course called Spy Dangerous and it's more intense self-defense, but it's two days. It's basically like, here's what you need to know what's going to work. And so we teach them, okay, hey, if somebody, you know, tries to hit you, here's how to defend yourself. Here's how to strike back. Here's how to actually strike back and make a count. Somebody tries to knife you, here's how to real life stop a knife attack. And guess what? You're going to get cut but you're going to live. 
And so then we do scenarios where we've got airsoft guns and they've got to do a gun disarm. So we're trying to teach them that. We use big red fat markers and they're trying to stack each other and they have the white t-shirt. Yeah. So we try and make it pretty intense and be like, this is what it's going to be real life minus us stabbing you with a real knife type of thing. But it is a bunch of different scenarios of, hey, you walk into your home one day and all of a sudden there's an intruder and maybe the intruder is going to stand there. What do you do? Or maybe the intruder is going to rush you. How do you deal with that? I've had so many clients come to me after gas station attacks kind of thing. So, you know, here's how to be smart at a gas station. Make sure you don't end up knifed or kidnapped or whatever. Yeah. I think, you know, for, for listeners, I get asked a lot like, hey, what's the best martial arts, you know, to learn how to defend yourself? And I often say none of them because a martial art is a martial art. That's developing body, mind, and spirit. You want to learn how to defend yourself, then you have to learn a, a fighting system. And that's what you just described, a fighting system that is scenario-based, right? If this happens, then this is the response, or this is the principle for the re- type of response to occur. And the only things I found, like uh, Sansu Kung Fu is scenario-based, Krav Maga is scenario-based, or like what you're doing, or like Tim Larkin's target focus training, which is based on Sansu. So if you're thinking, I want to defend myself, do something like that. Go to Jason's training. It's only two days. And in two days, I bet you you have testimonials from people like, hey, this happened. And man, whatever I did worked. And I know it came from your two-day training. I was just say, I had a woman who two men tried to kidnap at a gas station in Sarasota, Florida, and she was able to fight them off using what I taught her. Thankfully, it's a small number of testimonials, but yeah, I do have them because- Right. Yeah. You don't want tons of those. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the other thing about that, it's also about mindset. Like when I got to Buds and, and uh, the founder of SCARS, Jerry Peterson, was teaching and I had just received my black belt in karate, you know? So I, I was like, and I was 20, I went to Buds a little later. I was 25 when I went to SEAL training and I spent the last four years getting my black belt and blah, blah, blah. Anyways, so he comes up to me after about two weeks and goes, Divine, you know, because- the name is on my white t-shirt as a bud student, right? He goes, Divine, you got to unlearn that karate shit. It's going to get you killed someday. And I was like, dang, I just spent four years learning that karate shit. <laughs> but he was right. In fact, um, in between OCS, where I was at Officer Kennedy School, which before buds, after getting my black belt, I went home upstate New York on New Year's Eve and was hanging out with my brother and went into this bar. And you know, I had a couple of beers, but I wasn't like, anything crazy. And I just, I saw the bartender and I literally just smiled at her and asked her how she was doing. And she goes, Jimmy, I got another one. And out of the corner comes this scrappy dude, literally flying through the air, latches on and starts choking me out. And I'm like, caught me completely by surprise. And I could feel myself going out and I'm like, fuck, what do I do? I wasn't taught this in karate, you know? And my brother fortunately walked in right then and took care of it for me. I was embarrassed. I was like, holy crap. And then, you know, literally months later, I have Jerry tell me this, you got to unlearn the karate shit. So based upon that earlier scenario and my trust in Jerry, I said, okay, I think you're right. So it took a little while to unlearn how to block. And his main point was the defensive mindset, right? Someone's going to throw a punch at you, you block it. No, not in the military. So yeah, you attack. Even if it looks like a block to someone else, you're trying to break that arm as you're you know, heading in to take a target that's really vulnerable to land first injury. So, you know, I had to learn that. And once I learned that, right, with scars, everything's a target. And I'm sure you teach this very similarly. Everything, I look at a human being and I'm like, okay, that's the first target I would hit. And I know what's going to happen when I hit that target because I know how the body responds. And so that's going to reveal the second target and, and the third. And so when I learned how to actually dissect a human being like that and to take care of myself, then I never attracted another violent incident. You know, there's something that happened in the whole kind of matrix where, Nobody fucked with me. 
And it wasn't because I was walking around trying to be a badass. I'm actually a really peaceful guy. So it's, it's fascinating. So you got to, that's why I don't, I'm not in favor of the way the uh, law enforcement is trained, you know, the whole escalation of force. You know, I think yeah, you, the way that you're trained or I trained is much more effective and safe because you've, you you got to teach someone how to take a life and then to dial it back from there. No, I was saying when, I, when I'm teaching my course, people come on, I say, listen, CIA no longer stands for Central Intelligence Agency. It stands for crash into attacker. You are overwhelming those with significant violence. And that's how you stay alive. That's how you want to fight. I agree. It's so counterintuitive because fight or flight, you're going to want to run, but your, your mind is not clear. And you just make yourself a bigger target. Right. Move toward the sound of gunfire. That's what we say in SEALs. Anything else uh, that I failed to ask or you'd like to, to uh, share? No, I mean, I was trying to think. One of the, we just finished an invasive driving class. We teach people like how to actually ram through a vehicle in real life and how to do the 180 degree reverse turn. And How much do you charge for something like that for the listeners? So yeah, my two-day course is 2,500 bucks. Most of my clients are high net worth executives, business guys, security guys. Do they stay at the ranch or do they stay in town? So they stay in town. So my ranch is 20 miles from the hotel and the ranch is 320 acres of the most beautiful sagebrush you'll ever see is what I joke about. <laughs> so by the time we're done training, everybody wants to go back and have a nice shower and a good meal while we stay in town. That's cool. And do you, you so you set up your own track for the face of driving or do you use the dirt? I teach real ramming. Like, hey, this is based on the agency. There's my good legal aids based on what the agency taught me. So it's like real ramming, meaning you're going to be in a car, you're going to have a helmet for safety, but you're going to see what a real roadblock is. You're going to crash through that roadblock. And I have a, a truck with a safety bumper specially made for me. But yeah, I mean, it's it's all real legit training, but in a safe way. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Jason, where do you like people to come to find you or to reach out for you? Keep it easy. Just go to my YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Jason Hansen CIA. What's your website URL? My website is spybriefinggear.com. Spybriefinggear.com. Okay, we'll put those up here too. Man, what a great conversation. I really uh, appreciate your time and sharing your insights with the folks listening. I do want to come out there and visit you. My son my son loves cars, loves driving. I think we, we would probably have a ball at your training. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Mark. All right, take care. It's really nice to see you, Jason. It was a super interesting discussion with Jason Hansen, CIA officer author of Spy Secrets That Can Save Your Life. Really cool. I learned some interesting things and I'm going to head out there to that evasive driving school in Southern Utah with my son. Really cool. Jason, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Show notes are up at markdevine.com. The video will be up on my YouTube channel. If you want to reach out to me on social media, you can find me at Twitter slash X at Mark Devine and on Instagram or Facebook at Real Mark Devine. If you're not getting my newsletter, then go to markdevine.com and subscribe, please comes out every Tuesday. It's called Divine Inspiration. I've got my weekly blog post. I've got uh, show notes from the week's podcast in case you missed that. I've got a book I'm reading. I've got a weekly practice and other cool stuff that comes across my desk, which I think you'd find interesting. So check it out and share it with your friends. Thanks to my incredible team of Catherine Devine, my daughter, and Jason Sanderson and Jeff Haskell, who will produce the podcast and the newsletter and bring guests like Jason to you every week. Ratings and reviews, of course, help so much. So if you haven't rated or reviewed the show, please consider doing it wherever you listen. It helps other people evaluate shows, right? The more five-star rankings, the better the show in their minds. So super helpful. Thanks so much for doing that. And thanks also for being part of the change that you want to see in the world. You might've heard me say this before, like we have to be the change you want to see. Everything starts from the inside, then it's projected or shows up on the outside. So if we want more peace, we want more balance, we want more health. 
and we have more positivity in the world, then we have to start with ourselves. But now we can do that at scale through um, technology like this podcast. So thanks for joining me and I appreciate it. And until next time, stay focused, do the work and be safe. Booyah. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done.